Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And my name is Joel, and you are listening to the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile, the Enneagram Godmother. As you can tell from the intro, this is a Q&A episode where Suzanne does her best to answer the voicemails that you have left. If you want to leave a voicemail for a future Q&A episode, visit theenneagramjourney.org slash interact and leave one and we'll see if we can get to that. Before we get to today's questions, two quick plugs. The first, September 11th, this year, 2021, Suzanne is doing a free Know Your Number workshop, Saturday, September 11th, at First United Methodist Church, Dallas, and that is where we had the Breaking the Cycle event, which was just incredibly wonderful. So while it is free, you do have to register ahead of time. So visit firstchurchdallas.org slash events, register, and come. Dive a little deeper into the Enneagram or get introduced to it or bring your friend who doesn't know their number, but you want them to get into it, and uh, we'll make a day of it. Speaking of making a day, October 23rd, you've probably heard us say, save the date, mark your calendar. Well, now it's up. It's happening. It's all things Enneagram. You're going to visit ivpress.com slash allthingsanneagram and register for a whole $10 for a day packed with spiritual practices for your anagram type, live panels and Q&A with Suzanne Stabile and the authors of the Anagram Daily Reflection series and a robust selection of workshops on the anagram and its intersection with all things. And that's going to be Saturday, October 23rd. Visit ivpress.com slash allthingsanneagram there's also a link for it in the show notes here. And register today. Get your friends together. Get your family. Get whoever. Uh, there's going to be a workshop with Suzanne and the Reverend on that day. Spiritual direction in the Enneagram. And several other breakouts. And you might even see your boy Joel there for a minute or two. So, ivypress.com slash Enneagram, October 23rd. It's going to be incredible. And now, let's get to some incredible... Q&A, or Q&R, I think is now what people are saying, what the kids are calling it, questions and responses, uh, with Suzanne Stabile. All right, it's a Q&A. People heard it in the intro. The, Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Suzanne. Listen, my favorite one in that intro is our, our man, Brad Otts. Yeah? Before we knew Brad. Oh. Uh, and he called in a question. So and then every time I hear that intro, it's like, hey, there's Brad. Yeah. Shout out to Brad, Anagram 7. Well, it is Q&A. We are answering some voicemails that y'all have left. And let's just jump into it. Hi, Suzanne. Here's my question. Is it possible to be an emotional five? For years, I believe I mistyped myself as a four. Even though I resonated more with the motivations and passions of fives, I saw words like detached and lecture talk style, and I dismissed five as a possibility for me. Basically, I said, I have too many feelings to be a five. But here's the thing. I think I am a five. I have a huge thirst for knowledge. I hoard information, and I find myself collecting things or books related to my current learning obsessions. 
um, looking incompetent is a huge fear of mine and the desperate need to guard my energy is real. Even the related numbers for a five make sense to me. I relate so much to eights and I go to eight regularly and a six wing definitely resonates while I don't relate to threes at all. However, I have big feelings. I cry easily and often. I'm moved by beauty. I regularly get chills because something has touched me deeply. I feel empathy for people in the moment, not at a delayed time. All of these things made me think that I was a four, but I've never felt as though I don't belong or that I have some kind of flaw. I don't feel like I'm particularly creative and I don't have drama in my relationship. So is it possible to be an emotional, empathetic, romantic five or am I actually a four with a huge five wing? Help. Bless your heart. That's a lot. And you've really done some work to try to define what's five and what isn't and what's you and what isn't. So congratulations on all that good work. You have a couple of options. Either you're a five with a really big four wing, which you didn't seem to identify with, or you're a four with a really big five wing. It is possible to be a sexual five, which would accommodate for at least some of the emotions that you're talking about. It doesn't sound like you're a self-preserving five, so if you're going to differentiate within fiveness, then you have to ask yourself if you're an extrovert or an introvert, if you're social, sexual, or self-preserving if you have a strong wing and what that wing is. And I know that's a lot of work and that's kind of deep work. I would suggest that you, in places where you can get the information, read about sexual fives. And I would suggest that you think about your parents and what number they were or significant teachers and what number they were. I don't think fives are non-emotional. I think they're very thoughtful about who they're willing to be emotionally vulnerable with. So emotional five is not language that I would use. But if you are mindful and careful about who you share feelings with, and then you share very strong feelings with those people, that would fit. A sexual five. So why don't you do some work with that and work with motivations. Are you motivated like a five? Are you motivated to protect time and energy and space? Are you um, one of those people who dives really deep into one subject so that you can be the best at that one thing? Are you comfortable in conversations with people when you're not particularly schooled in what they want to talk about? Those are some good questions that you can ask yourself. At the end of the day, nobody can tell you what number you are, and I would encourage you to spend some time just working with four and five and not the other numbers around the Enneagram, until you're solid on which one of those you are. If you're a four with a strong five wing, then that would mean that you go to two in stress. And um, it sounds like that's a possibility. When you first started answering the question, I was going to ask you who like the most 
emotional, I suppose, five is maybe that you know. And I'm sitting here and I'm looking in the background of the office is uh, the cover of Morgan Harper Nichols, Enneagram Daily Reflection book on being a five. Mm -hmm. And there's someone who, through her, I mean, I don't know her very well personally at all, except for the handful of times we've gotten to speak with her. Through her art, there's so much emotion in that. Mm-hmm. So that might be someone also to check out. Yeah, for sure. And she's very um, prolific in sharing her work. Like she's not holding it. She puts it out there and puts it out there. And I, she's astonishing in terms of dealing with feelings. And I think she's a sexual five. Not to, This is not a, a ploy to sell a couple of books. Mm-hmm. But I would think if I were debating between, you know, am I four, am mm-hmm, I five? Mm-hmm. If I were to read 40 Days on a Four with, with Christine, Christine and then 40 Days on a Five with Morgan, I would, wouldn't someone definitely identify pretty heavily with one or the other? Absolutely. That's a really good idea. Enneagram Daily Reflection Series, plug right there. Well, and, and what you want to do as you read those two books, you want a j- journal, you want a notebook where you're going to write down the differences in the two as you come across them and how that fits you. The seven in me, this isn't how, this is super average to below average. <laughs> we'll be like, all right, well, I'm just going to kind of flip through these uh-huh. and yeah. I wouldn't do the work. The work. It'd be like, all right, which one sounds more like me? Yeah. So, so don't do that. No. I just want to add to that. I, I think we have to be, have a broad, very broad definition of creative. Because I, you know me, I can't draw anything. I can't paint. I, I can't craft. I don't do any of those things. My creativity is in my teaching. So, I, you know, I think some people think, well, I can't be a four because I don't do any of these literal art forms. And creativity comes out in a different way. Mm-hmm. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Jordan. And over the past few years, my wife and I have been uh, learning a lot about the Enneagram. And we first took the test uh, shortly after we got married. And I typed as a nine and she typed as a five. But after learning more and reading The Road Back to You, uh, my wife completely identifies with the type nine. And I think I am a type one. I definitely know I'm still in the anger triad, but I think I'm a type one with a wing two. And the only uh, issue is I feel like I don't have an inner critic that is critical of myself, but it's more critical of others. And so I'd love any advice on how to know if I am a type one or if I've mistyped myself and also how important are the childhood wounds for knowing which is your type. So thank you um, for all that you do. And um, I look forward to hearing back from you. Thank you. Hi, Jordan. You are one among many trying to discern between being a nine or a one. That's the hardest place to discern on the Enneagram, between those two numbers. I'm not a fan of indicators because they struggle, I think, to uh, ask enough questions about motivation. And so I would lead you back to 
looking at motivation for nine, which is primarily to avoid conflict, and motivation for one, which is primarily to believe that you are good, like all the way through good. The inner critic is a pretty big piece to say, I don't really identify with that. Ones do identify with that. If you're a nine with a really strong one wing, then that would explain your criticism of other people. So I want you to work with, do you avoid conflict at all costs? I mean, nines will do lots of things to skirt conflict. Do you have trouble because you've skirted conflict? Naming what your own desires are. Like, do you know where you want to go to dinner? Or, you know, those basic things. Do, Do you feel the freedom to just say, this is what I want and this is how I want it? Another thing that almost everyone I've ever known does that might help you that nines don't do, and that is ones perfect something in order to manage their anger. So when you're feeling angry, do you um, go get your car washed? Do you reorganize some of the stuff in your email? Do you clean out your sock drawer? Do you uh, mow the lawn like nobody else can do it? Those kinds of things. And did they bring you relief from the rising anger that you're feeling? I would say also that People tend to move toward nines, and they tend to back up a little from ones. And I think that's because they are aware that there is a a known quality in ones that they want to do things correctly and right, and that they really appreciate that in other people. Another thing I want to share with you is that, interestingly enough, One in five is a very common combination for couples. And I don't know why. They seem to find one another. And I think part of it is because fives appreciate the energy that ones are willing to give to things to get them exactly right. Nines and fives, as a couple, have less energy than ones and fives as a couple. And so that might help you if you look at how many friends you have and how many social engagements you do in a two or three week period and how you feel when you come home from social engagements. Do both of you come home kind of, I'm glad we went, but man, it's good to be home. Think about those kinds of things too. I hope that helps. It's awfully hard to figure all that out. The last thing I would say with a little bit of hesitancy is if you took the test that you took off the table, if you just decided you were going to completely ignore the information from that and just look at what you've learned and stories you've heard that you were able to relate to, movies you've seen where you related to the person in the movie, things like that, and kind of work with that and see if that helps you. He talked about the inner critic and how he he said something to the effect of it's at more outward than inward. I heard you teaching one time say that with eights, nines, and ones, 
they need to know where the blame goes. Absolutely. So if you take that teaching with what you say about the inner critic, it seems like that would be more of a nine thing that where's the blame. And if it's outside of you, then, you know, holding that criticism of other people and where that blame is, but with ones, if often the blame eventually gets to them, doesn't it? It does. Like they are very hard on themselves and nines, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating to watch, to observe how quickly nines tell you that it isn't their fault. <laughs> the reverend's not here right now. No, the reverend isn't here, but boy, he's a master at, here's why, here's why, Suzanne, that's your fault and not mine. <laughs> it, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Jordan, I'm really proud of y'all for doing so much good work. Just keep up the work. You'll figure it out. Hey, Suzanne and Joel. My name is James, and I'm an Enneagram One. Over time, I've worked on bringing up my thinking center, and I've definitely improved at identifying my inner critic and putting it in its place. However, I'm still not sure that I'm making much progress in developing good habits for productive thinking. A lot of the thoughts that I have in my head focus on planning or strategizing about actions I'll take in the future. In a lot of ways, those feel more like a preliminary version of doing instead of actual thinking. So my question is, does that count as productive thinking? (laughs) And if not, what are some ways to help my brain allow productive thinking to happen? Whitney... I think she loves doing calendar stuff more than almost anybody else I know. I, I bet it rivals you. Uh, so we've got a colorful family calendar yep. on the refrigerator with everything going on on it. She has her own written calendar on paper. We have the digital calendar that is always, she's on top of that. It's never incorrect. So there's that. If you just if you're looking for company, you're not the only one doing that. Yeah, I I think that um, planning and calendaring and knowing what you're going to do when is very comforting for ones, very comforting, and it feels like accomplishing. It's like now that I know this is all lined out, we've got this. It's a preliminary. We've done it, kind of thing. It's just funny. It's so different for me looking towards the future and planning. Mm-hmm. The high of that is way different than for for Whitney. Yep. That I think it's more of a, it brings, I think it brings her serenity mm-hmm. and it, like I described it as high of planning. Well, and part of what it is, is it's the illusion of control. Do you still, I've heard you say this before. Do you still feel like one to the dependent stance or the is the stance that maybe potentially struggles the most with needing to be in control? Yes, I absolutely believe that. And I, th- I think this whole planning, knowing what you're going to do and when and all of that is part of trying to control the future. And who knows what's going to happen that keeps all of those plans from being realized. In terms of productive thinking, Ones have to see beyond dualistic thinking. So you'll know that you're being more productive in your thinking 
when there are three options instead of one wrong and one right option, when there are five acceptable ways to do things instead of one right way to do things, and you expand productive thinking by being in conversation with people you don't agree with. For example, I'm not suggesting you should do this necessarily, but it it would work if it fits into your way of being in the world. If you watch one news cable news station that leans one direction and you choose once a week to watch the other that leans the opposite direction of how you think, then that has to bring up your thinking because you have to wrestle with what you disagree with. And then you have to wrestle with why you disagree with it. And that expands how you see, which expands productive thinking. I never would want to intentionally seek this out. And in the recent past, I've had the opportunity to uh, need to stay in just part of and listen more than participate. A few conversations that I didn't agree with what was being said. I mean, thinking isn't a, uh, you know, it's my dominant center. Right. But what you just said, explaining like, some compassion, some understanding, some patience, all that grows just by being, you know, not in your wheelhouse or with things, you know, listening to things you agree with. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's happening right as we record this, one of the things that's happening here in the Metroplex is uh, all of these meetings that schools are having about whether or not to wear masks. And honestly, if you sit and watch a news story about that, There's unproductive thinking on both sides, and it's obvious. And it's because it is uh, burdened with emotional intensity. And you know, Joel, you've been with me your whole life. (laughs) When I am too emotional, my thinking is illogical. That's a given. And I have to work through the emotion before I can be a logical thinker. And I can't imagine what it's like during COVID with so many sides to everything for an Enneagram one to know what they think and what they believe and to be able to hold that without losing their peace over people who don't think and believe the same way. There's unproductive thinking everywhere. You know how, Joel, you know how I have been saying for a long time, there's uh, anger and anxiety falling on all of us. Well, now there's unproductive thinking falling on all of us. Technology does not help in that regard because of the, I think, I don't remember who we were listening to, but they shared and they called you know it an echo chamber because of the way the uh, algorithms work the apps find what you're into that's right and then just funnel everything that you already agree with and like so that that's all we're being surrounded with on how we spend probably too much of our time absolutely on on all the screens that we look at that's right that's right i would also suggest james that you read everything belongs by richard Rohr. he's a one on the enneagram and that was his First book explaining non-duality or non-dual thinking, even though he doesn't use much of that language in that book. It's, it, it's a good place for you to plant yourself. 
and kind of begin to learn from what he's sharing about what he's learned. Hi there. I'm a self-identified nine who about two years ago discovered the Enneagram. As I've learned more, I realized that I was very much asleep to myself and going through the motions of life. Being an elementary school teacher and having three young children, I was often withdrawing into TV or my habitual routines. I have worked hard these last two years to wake up and truly be present in life. I have a long way to go, but I'm working on it. My question to you has to do with relationships and alcohol abuse. I'm married to a self-identified five who's struggling with abuse over the last five years. About a year ago, everything came to a head. He was drinking during the days, not doing well at work, ended up driving drunk with our kids. We both agreed things needed to change, and he did a wonderful job changing many external stress factors. He decided to stop drinking, told his family members he was struggling, and has changed work positions. This being said, he's having difficulties doing the internal work needed to continue to be sober. He's had a few relapses since making all these changes. I've expressed that in order to feel safe in the relationship, I would like him to do the work internally, but he seems to want to do everything on his own. This is putting a lot of strain on a relationship, and he doesn't understand my need for distance and feels we should be making more progress on our relationship. So we continue to be in two different places in the relationship. My question to you is, how do I continue to support my husband and still be true to myself and my own feelings? That's a brave question. Uh, Thank you for trusting us with that. I want to start by asking two questions. Uh, does he have a sponsor and does he go to meetings and are you in Al-Anon? Those are two. That's three questions. Oh, sorry. You know me. Those are, uh, conversations that I think you should have. Also, I want to recommend to you the book by Melody Beatty, The Language of Letting Go. And I would encourage you to, uh, order it. From Amazon, there's a hardback copy that's not beautiful. There's a paperback copy that will have a beautiful cover. Um, It'll have a reading for every day and a little room at the bottom of the page for you to write some notes about that. I would encourage you to start with whatever day it is, date it is when you receive it, and make it part of your routine to read it and think about it every day. Now, having said all of those things, The fact that you all are working to work things out is commendable. And it's hard to keep working over a long period of time. It's hard to work the kind of work that's necessary with children. And COVID has been its own special challenge for literally everybody. And so I think you need to take into account that COVID changes things and COVID isn't going to last forever. Now, having said all of that, there are numbers on the Enneagram who tend to back up from a a repetitious request that really, in a lot of ways, is immeasurable. Inner work is just that. And nobody can do inner work for somebody else. And there's no guaranteed outcome to doing inner work. You know, 
I way back would encourage people. I used to do one-on-one Enneagram sessions. I haven't done that for years, but I used to. And I would suggest something to somebody thinking that I knew what the outcome was going to be if they did what I suggested. And I was wrong about that at least half the time. There was an outcome, but it wasn't the predictable one. And so I've said a lot of things. I hope I'll say more with Joel's help. And I hope you've been able to relate to some of that. But all of those things are the first thing I would say if you and I were sitting in a coffee shop talking. It's hard. It is so very hard to let go and understand that other people have to manage their own sobriety. And they have to manage their sobriety in their way, and their ways usually change, and they adapt and continue to try to manage their sobriety. And having relapses is part of the journey. I literally do not know one single person who uh, struggles with addiction who's in recovery who hasn't had at least one relapse. It's part of the journey. And my biggest question after all of that is, do you have a therapist? And if you don't, y'all need one. And your husband isn't going to want one because he's a five, and he's already more publicly vulnerable than he wants to be, and therapy sounds like just more vulnerability. But if you get the right therapist, it can change everything. And if the first one you choose together isn't the right one, find another one. And I would encourage you to ask if he's willing to explore therapy with you and let him pick the therapist. And I feel like I just laid out 15 challenges and no answers. But within those, I think there are answers for you. And I want you to know that those are from my heart. I'm not, I'm not just saying, well, you ought to do this, and then you should do this, and why don't you do this? My life experience tells me, and my experience hearing other people's stories tells me, that if you make a list of the things I suggested, and then you put them in the order that you think you might be able to do them, that will be a path for you that's safe, And that relies on uh, the wisdom and the professional gifts of other people that I don't have. When those were all really great suggestions that I bet he's not going to be super down (laughs) with. Any of them? Well, no, I mean, hopefully, maybe he's like, that all sounds great. And and I'm in. She said that... um, you know, he's made all these great changes in his life, mm-hmm. but that maybe the inner work isn't happening. And eventually that is, that is what recovery is, is inner work. You know, we talk about that, whatever the drug of choice, alcohol, you know, that's not the issue. It's something else. And that's why there are so many sober drunks, you know, the worst people to be around, even though they're not drinking yeah. because they're not doing the inner work. So the inner work, I think, will will come because, like you say and have said 
much more eloquently and sweetly. <laughs> you know, they're doing, they're trying. They're two human beings. Absolutely. Working they're on working a relationship. On yeah. So that'll come. The thing that I also thought too is that his, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, his road recovery and her journey along goes alongside that. They don't, it's not something for them to do together. No, can't do it together. Yeah. So therapist is great. And she'll, you know, your own therapist, not, especially on recovery stuff. That's hard to, that's why they're closed meetings and things that you share at those that you don't share with, with your wife sometimes or your husband or your partner or whatever. I agree with all of that. And I, I think I get a little bit, uh, extra when I hear about a couple that's trying with three little ones Mm. and a job change. And, uh, you know, it's like all of the two-ness in me wants to say, do this and then do this and then do this and then that'll help because I so want something to work for them because they've already done so much work. Following what you said, one of the, Additional things I would say is um, figure out how much is work he hasn't done in your estimation or is avoiding doing and what you haven't done because it is very difficult to trust the journey of somebody you love who's in recovery. And when you don't trust the journey, you make up things and address them, and that creates distance. So she's a nine. I wonder how much six energy happens around this and how much time she spends in six space because of what he's going through and they're going through together and how that can really change it. If I had to say, um, if somebody said to me, name the numbers that have the hardest time in recovery and have the hardest time being part of a 12-step group and all those things, it would be ones and fives. Yeah. Fives just don't like to be trapped in something they can't master, and there's no mastering recovery. It's not a heady thing. You can memorize no. the whole blue book and that's not it that's not it the other thing too that you talk speaking of ones and i thought of this a minute ago for him to look to her and say what we say to ones what can i do to help you have help you be what what you you need to be and so to honestly ask that question like what is it and then he can honestly respond with am i willing to do that am i or can I do that? Will I not do that? Maybe I can't do that now, but I'll do that in the future. And just the dialogue of her yeah. stating what stating her needs around this, and can you give it to me? Mm-hmm. You know we, that we have two separate questions that we work with, and and one is with ones. The question is, how can I help you have that be what you want it to be? The question that we use often with relationships, regardless of the two numbers, is you tell me what you want and I'll tell you whether or not I can give it to you. And then I'll tell you what I want. 
and you can tell me whether or not you can give it to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing I feel like it's this whole thing will lack integrity if I don't say. And I don't like to feel like I'm one step away from the best integrity I have to offer today. I spent several hours last night with friends talking about a couple who have small children and uh, he's an alcoholic and uh, they're in a lot of trouble. And I feel sure that some of my energy from that uh, landed here. So I want to leave in what I said. Like I don't want you to edit my suggestions, but to you as a couple, I would like for you to, to receive them this way as if I had one meeting with you and I wanted to give you all the options of things that you could try that would help you take the next steps that you need to take toward the healing that you're looking for. And where it sounds like I think you should do all of them tomorrow, I get it that it sounds that way, but I I don't mean it that way. Here's a list of therapists. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It was such a big answer. (laughs) I'm just imagining the five of you working on life and trying to get it done. And it's like, here's everything I have to offer. Choose whatever works. And if it's not for you, then that's good. Just let it go. Hey, I am an Enneagram 2, married to a 6, parenting a 14-year-old 8. So as you can imagine, the Enneagram has changed my life in ways you would expect. All good. So of course, I can't shut up about the Enneagram to anyone with whom I speak, And I was talking to a friend. So last night we had a long conversation and she said she had shared it with her mother. Now, again, bearing in mind, sharing is not the same as reading your book. It's not the same as doing a study. People are sharing bits and pieces and people kind of do the internet pop stuff to learn about it, which in and of itself is a thing. However, um, and her mom said, okay, I was trying to communicate with your father in a new way. And, you know, I think it's manipulative. And I thought that was really interesting. I could kind of see what she means. And I was able to articulate back to my friend about how I felt like, no, it really is just reaching out to people in a way that they best receive the information. But I was curious about what you think about that, um, that summation of the Enneagram. Have you ever heard that before? And what your response would be to someone who says that they think that using kind of what we learn through the Enneagram to communicate with other people is manipulative. Thank you. Is the Enneagram manipulative? The answer is people are manipulative, (laughs) period. People manipulate. All, All people do. And they, when they're being manipulative, use whatever tool they have to manipulate other people. So is it meant to be manipulative? No. Can it be? Absolutely. If people want to use it that way. On the other hand, um, silence is manipulative, and pouting is manipulative, and anger is manipulative, and giving can be manipulative, and withholding is manipulative. Like, that's an unending barrel of things that you can use to get your way with other people. At its core the enneagram is designed 
to help you do enough inner work because you understand that the best part of you is the worst part of you and you have some tools now to work on how to be a healthier you. Though that Enneagram work is what helps you stop being manipulative regardless of who you are. Does that make sense? Yeah. Two things. I like what she described. It's like, no, just trying to figure out better ways to communicate and yeah. meet people where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't even think about how literally everything can be used yeah. to manipulate people. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> Is Enneagram manipulative? No. People are. Yeah. That's the answer. People are very manipulative. And it starts at a very young age. So our youngest grandchild happens to be your youngest child, Joel. And that Josephine can manipulate the socks off of you. She's fascinating. And she's three. Yeah, I don't think she means it. She's just so sweet. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah, that's not what you say every second. (laughs) Sometimes she's just manipulative. And it's a thing to watch. And I think the Enneagram is just true. And when people want to avoid that truth, they say manipulative things like the Enneagram is manipulative so that they can avoid the truth that's there. And I think that might possibly fit this situation. And lastly, I would say, you know, you got to be really careful with wanting other people to learn the Enneagram. And if I have this right, then it's your friend. For the record, we want everybody to. We do, we do. But if I have this right, it's your friend whose friend talked to their mother who talked to their father. There might be one extra friend in there, but something like that. A friend whose mother Mm -hmm. talked to the father. That's a lot of people to get through to get what actually happened in that conversation at the point where he replied with, this is manipulative. It could be a telephone, a game of telephone (laughs) there. It could be. And actually, he called your mother manipulative, <laughs> not the So the thing I want to cover all this with is if you want somebody to learn the Enneagram, give them the road back to you and ask them to read about your number and then ask for your book back and say, I just want you to have this, this opportunity to read this one little piece about me because it describes me in ways that I find it hard to just share with everybody. And then ask for your book back. And I tell you, 999 times out of 1,000, people want the book because they want to know about themselves. And that is not manipulative. I don't think. Is that manipulative? Uh, Now that I'm thinking. (laughs) Could be. That could be good, healthy manipulation. Uh, Well, thank you so much. Thank you all for your questions. And keep them coming in. And, uh, yeah, good luck on the journey, all the things, all the stuff. Be sure to join us October 23rd, virtually, Enneagram All Day, uh, LTM and InterVarsity Press co-hosting a all-day virtual event, all things Enneagram, with the nine authors of the Enneagram Daily Reflection Series that we kind of plugged a couple already in this episode, uh, and Suzanne and the Reverend, and different panels and different workshops and breakout groups that are going to happen. It's going to be fantastic. And you can get all that information at ivpress.com backslash all things Enneagram. 
I think recently I learned that I don't have to say backslash. I think I dated myself there. It's just slash. All things Enneagram. Oh, yeah? yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to know that. Nobody is as dated as I am when <laughs> yeah. it comes to that. IVPress.com slash all things Enneagram. Hey, really, y'all, that, that day is going to be like no other. These nine authors are just astonishing. So you, you don't want to miss it.